Welcome back, our fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast. I am Judge Michael Warren, and in this episode, we continue our review of Article 1 of the Constitution. We have completed our examinations of Section 1 through 5 of Article 1. In last episode, we reviewed the first provision of Article 1, Section 6, addressing congressional pay. In this episode, we will continue the review of the rest of Section 6, which addresses congressional immunity and the prohibition of serving in another federal office while being a member of Congress. When I say we, I'm joined by Mike Gerard and bombastic Brent Bassett. And spectacular Sheila Guerin and enchanting Aaron Mercino, thank you for all your support. And don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. When we return, Mike Gerard will get us started. As we've previously discussed, the first article of the Constitution establishes the Congress. Sections 1 through 5 of that article establish the House of Representatives and Senate, how the members of each chamber are chosen, the qualifications of and terms of office for the House of Representatives and the Senate, who sets the rules for congressional elections, the requirement that Congress meet at least once every year, and the internal organization and processes of the Congress. As we also discussed last time, the first part of Section 6 addresses congressional pay. The next sentence of Sentence 6 addresses how members of Congress enjoy special immunities. They shall in all cases, except treason, felony, and breach of peace, be privileged from arrest during their attendance at the session of their respective houses, and in going and returning from the same, and for any speech or debate in either house, they shall not be questioned in any other place. Notice that this provision addresses two distinct issues. The first is that it prohibits a member of Congress from being arrested while he or she is attending Congress if the arrest does not involve treason, a felony, or a breach of the peace. The last clause of Article 5 of the Articles of Confederation had similar provisions which provided that... Members of Congress shall be protected in their persons from arrest and imprisonments during the time of their going to and from an attendance on Congress, except for treason, felony, or breach of the peace. As we've discussed, the Constitutional Convention considered two major competing drafts of the Constitution. One was primarily drafted by Virginia Delegate James Madison, and it was offered by Virginia Governor Edmund Randolph. It's usually called the Virginia Plan or the Randolph Resolutions or the Randolph Plan. The counter was offered by New Jersey Delegate William Patterson, and it's usually called the New Jersey Plan or the Patterson Resolutions or the Patterson Plan. Neither the Virginia Plan nor the New Jersey Plan had any provisions addressing congressional immunity. This clause is actually attributed to South Carolina Delegate Charles Pinckney, cousin of fellow South Carolina delegate General Charles Coatsworth Pinckney. Apparently, Charles Pinckney drew up his own competing plan of the Constitution, but we only have fragments as reported by the delegates. The plan itself apparently has been lost to history. This plan doesn't seem to have made much of a mark on the Constitutional Convention. However, in connection with congressional immunity, the Pinckney plan is reported to have had this language. The members of both houses shall, in all cases, except for treason, felony, or breach of the peace, be free from arrest during their attendance on Congress and in going to and returning from it. As we've noted before, after approximately two months of debate, a drafting committee was organized by the Constitutional Convention to develop a draft that hopefully everyone could agree on. The committee released a report on August 6, 1787, and Article 6, Section 5 of that report provided, in part, The members of each house shall, in all cases except treason, felony, and breach of the peace, be privileged from arrest during their attendance at Congress, and in going to and returning from it. Notice this exception for immunity from arrest applies only to treason, felony, and breach of the peace, which could be literally interpreted to mean that members of Congress could not be arrested in the performance of their duties or at Congress for misdemeanors. However, that phraseology of treason, felony, and breach of peace is actually a term of art that was well understood by the Founding Fathers. It originated in England and carried over to the colonies and then into the Constitution, and it simply meant that congressmen could not be arrested 
in civil cases, which means that they could be arrested for any kind of criminal case. Now, we know that not all of our tremendous listeners are lawyers, so just to be clear, a criminal case means the government is charging someone with a crime and the government is seeking to punish the defendant through imprisonment, fine, or some other penalty for violating the criminal law. A civil case is between private parties, either individuals or companies, and the plaintiff is usually seeking money, damages, or some other compensation or remedy against the defendant. And back to the Constitution, the provision exempts members of Congress for arrest only for a civil case. This may seem odd to us today. Why was this clause even necessary? People don't get arrested in civil cases. Well, that's not quite right, Mike Gerard. Arrests in civil cases are rare, but it can happen. Nowadays, to be arrested in a civil case, a person usually has to fail to do one of two things. Number one, the person fails to appear for a court-ordered proceeding in which they have been compelled to attend, like uh, repeatedly skipping a court-ordered deposition or creditor's examination. And yes, I've issued bench warrants under such circumstances. Number two, a person can purposefully violate a court order in a civil case, like a no-contact order or parental custody agreement. And yes, I've issued bench warrants for those too. Now, during the founding era, civil incarceration was much more common. For example, people could be arrested for failing to pay debts, and this happened all the time. In fact, some founding fathers, such as Pennsylvania delegate and future Supreme Court Justice James Wilson, as well as Pennsylvania delegate and key financier of the revolution, Robert Morris, were both incarcerated in debtor's prison. Hmm, thanks, Judge, for the... uh correction, even though I was just reading what you wrote. So anyways, it was completely possible that without this protection, a congressman could have been arrested on the floor of the House of Representatives in a civil case. Now, this would have a deleterious effect on the entire nation because it would deprive everyone of the members' insight and knowledge and vote. Ironically, James Wilson, in his lectures, explained how this privilege was deeply rooted in Anglo-Saxon law well before William the Conqueror invaded and took power over England in 1066. This necessary privilege has continued substantially the same since the time of the Saxons. The Grand Assembly of the Witnagamot, that is the ancient council of Anglo-Saxon kings, was holding sacred and all the members were under the public faith, going in and coming unless the party were for probatus, or that is a proven thief. Now, this privilege of safe passage being thus ancient and fundamental, and not by any law taken away, resteth still in force. The United States Supreme Court, in the 190 case of Williamson versus the United States, quoted the eminent legal authority, Lord Mansfield in 1770, which provides a strong impression of what the founders had in mind at the time of the Constitutional Convention. The laws of this country allow no place or employment as a sanctuary for crime, and where I have the honor to sit as judge Neither royal favor nor popular applause shall ever protect the guilty. Members of both houses should be free in their persons in cases of civil suits, for they may come a time when the safety and welfare of this whole empire may depend upon their attendance in Parliament. God forbid that I should advise any measure that would in future endanger the state. But this bill has no such tendency. It expressly secures the persons of members from arrest in all civil suits. Similar sentiments were expressed by the leading legal scholar Sir William Blackstone. And as we've noted before, Blackstone was enormously influential in the colonies, and he wrote in 1765, Neither can any member of either house be arrested and taken into custody, unless for some indictable offense, without a breach of the privilege of Parliament. 
it seems to have been understood that no privilege was allowable to the members, their families, or servants in any crime whatsoever, for all crimes are treated by the law as being contra pacum domini regis, that is, against the king's peace. Now note here that in addition to the fact that it didn't apply to criminal cases, this constitutional provision only applies to arrests. Being served with a summons to appear in court or being served with a complaint or similar process is fine. The members simply cannot be arrested. This provision drew no debate in the Constitutional Convention, the state ratifying conventions, and the Federalist and Anti-Federalist papers. And this is almost certainly so because everyone understood what the privilege entailed and the privilege itself was uncontroversial. Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story, in his famous familiar exposition of the Constitution of the United States, elucidated. Next, the privilege from arrest. This is given in all cases except of crimes in going to, attending upon, and returning from any session of Congress. It would be a great risk to consider it as in reality a personal privilege for the benefit of the member. It is rather a privilege for the benefit of his constituents, that they may not be deprived of the presence, services, and influence of their own representative in the national councils. It might otherwise happen that he might be arrested from mere malice, or from political persecution, or upon some unfounded claim, and thus they might be deprived of his aid and talents during the whole session. In other words, this clause was necessary to protect representatives and senators from being harassed for political or other reasons. It was also vital to ensure that the people's representatives would not be deterred from attending to their duties. It also defended the social compact by ensuring that members of Congress could perform their duties on behalf of their constituents. On the other hand, no such protection exists in connection with criminal offenses because no one is above the law. Thanks, Mike Gerard. The next section of the constitutional provision grants members of Congress immunity for whatever they say on the floor of Congress. It provides, For any speech or debate in either house, they shall not be questioned in any other place. The last clause of Article 5 of the Articles of Confederation had a similar provision, as did the Pickney Plan and the August 6 Committee Report. What is quite amazing about this provision is how broad it is. It provides that a member of Congress cannot be questioned for any speech or debate anywhere else. This means no civil or criminal prosecution for anything you say on the floor of the House or the Senate. You can call for the president to be assassinated, reveal military secrets, falsely accuse a political opponent of being a child molester, or yell fire when there is none. And you cannot be held liable or penalized in any civil or criminal court. And don't for a second think that this immunity hasn't been abused on occasion. One incident some of our more politically attuned and uh, mature readers might remember is when Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid took the floor of the U.S. Senate and accused presidential candidate Mitt Romney of not paying taxes for 10 years. This accusation was a blatant lie. Romney paid millions of dollars in taxes. The Washington Post gave Reed four Pinocchios, and political fact gave him a pants-on-fire rating. When pressed about it, Reed refused to retract the falsehood and simply told a CNN reporter, Romney didn't win, did he? Reed also bragged in an interview for the Washington Post, It's one of the best things I've ever done. And unlike the immunity from arrest in civil cases, this speech immunity completely upends the old British practice. Members of Parliament were not free to debate or speak on any topic without fear of consequence elsewhere. In fact, at the beginning of Parliament, the Speaker had to ask the monarch for the privilege of free speech. And this was not always guaranteed. For example, Queen Elizabeth in 1566 refused to grant Parliament the authority to debate royal succession. That's a pretty huge topic. 
Various other controversies were sprinkled throughout British history, resulting in intimidation tactics, sequestration of members of parliament, and self-censorship. After the Constitutional Convention, in a series of highly attended constitutional lectures, influential future Supreme Court Justice and Constitutional Convention Delegate James Wilson explained how important and revolutionary this provision really was. Since he was from Pennsylvania, he also refers to that state's constitution. The members of the National Legislature, and those also of the Legislature of Pennsylvania, shall not for any speech or debate in either House be questioned in any other place. In England, the freedom of speech is, at the opening of every new Parliament, particularly demanded of the King in person, by the Speaker of the House of Commons. The liberal provision which is made by our constitutions upon this subject may be justly viewed as a very considerable improvement in the science and practice of government. In order to enable and encourage a representative of the public to discharge his public trust with firmness and success, it is indispensably necessary that he should enjoy the fullest liberty of speech and that he should be protected from the resentment of everyone however powerful, to whom the exercise of that liberty may occasion offence. This immunity speech clause allows members of Congress to say what they mean and mean what they say. It gives them a backbone to tell the truth. It allows them to viciously attack enemies, propose any policy, critique proposals, condemn oppressive actions, and otherwise speak, all without fear of reprisal. Yes, it may be abused, but overall it is vital to ensure unfettered debate and allows the nation to find the best and most wise policies. Justice Story adds his own insightful flair to the importance of this provision. The liberty of speech and debate. This too is less to be regarded as a personal privilege than as a public right to secure independence, firmness, and fearlessness on the part of the members so that in discharging their high trusts they may not be overawed by wealth or power or dread of prosecution. Again, this is just amazing. Whatever a representative or senator says on the floor, he cannot be held accountable for it anywhere else. No civil liability, no libel and defamation suits, no criminal charges, nada, nothing, zippo. This is a very important and almost totally ignored clause of the Constitution. But the clause doesn't mean that there are no consequences whatsoever. Representatives and senators are accountable to one body and only one body, Congress. Remember, as we've learned earlier in this series... The House and Senate have full authority to establish their own rules, and they can sanction, punish, and expel members. That includes for whatever they might happen to say on the floor of Congress. James Wilson explains it. When it is mentioned that the members shall not be questioned in any other place, the implication is strong that, for their speeches in either house, they may be questioned and censored by that house in which they disorderly behavior. Under the protection of privilege, to use incendiary or licentious of language in the course of debate is disorderly behavior of a kind peculiarly base and ungentlemanly. This is why you almost never hear a member of Congress swearing, obnoxiously disrupting the proceedings, or engaging in other egregious behavior, because they can be held account by the Congress. Now, that, of course, requires a majority of members of the respective chamber to be willing to act but there is a check of sorts always lurking in the background. Although this provision widely broadened the authority of members of Congress to say what they want and broke substantially with British tradition, it was not the object of contention at the Constitutional Convention, the ratifying state conventions, or the Federalist and Anti-Federalist papers. It was widely accepted and seems to have been overlooked. More contentious matters drew the intention in such debates. Talking about contentious, bombastic Brent Bassett will take it from here. Thanks, Judge. The two provisions we just reviewed provided immunities to the Congress. The next one is the opposite. It is a prohibition. It provides as follows. No senator or representative shall, during the time for which he was elected, be appointed to any civil office under the authority of the United States, which shall have been created 
or the emoluments whereof shall have been increased during such time. And no person holding office under the United States shall be a member of either house during his continuance in office. This long sentence begins by preventing a representative or senator from being appointed to another federal office, and it bars any person that is serving in another federal office from also serving in the Congress. In other words, if you are going to serve in Congress, you can't hold any other federal job. This provision has been referred to as the Incompatibility of Offices Clause, the Prohibition on Dual Offices Holding, the Prohibition of Plural Office Holding, and other monikers. For the sake of convenience, we will refer to this provision as the Prohibition of Plural Office Holding. And to elaborate, the federal office would include the President, judges, magistrates, ambassadors, diplomats, customs officials, tax officials, members of the cabinet like Attorney General, Treasury, Secretary of the Defense, Secretary of the Interior or Secretary of State, members of the Federal Reserve, military officers, postmasters, port managers, land-grant officers, you name it. The Founding Fathers believed that these kinds of offices would be created and would pay well. In fact, many would be highly lucrative. Because of this constitutional provision, members of Congress are cut off from holding another federal office. Article 5 of the Articles of Confederation had a somewhat similar provision. No state shall be represented in Congress by less than two, no more than seven members. And no person shall be capable of being a delegate for more than three years in any term of six years. Nor shall any person being a delegate be capable of holding any office under the United States for which he or another for his benefit receives any salary, fees, or emolument of any kind. An emolument, by the way, is something of value that kind of comes along with the office. Think of money, artwork, travel, gifts, furniture, transportation, fringe benefits, privileges like parking spaces. You get the idea. Accordingly, delegates to the Congress under the Articles of Confederation could hold an office in the federal government so long as he was not paid in any manner whatsoever. Any paid office or one that came with fees or emoluments was off-limits for delegates in Congress. The Virginia plan presented at the Constitutional Convention had an even broader provision. Resolution 4 provided, Resolved that the members of the first branch of the national legislature ought to be elected by the people of the several states every blank for the term of blank, to be the age of blank years at least, to receive liberal stipends by which they may be compensated for the deviation of their time to the public service, to be ineligible to any office established by a particular state or under the authority of the United States, except those peculiarly belonging to the functions of the first branch during the term of service and for the space of blank after its expiration, to be incapable of re-election for the space of blank after the expiration of their terms of service, and to be subject to recall. Oh my gosh, there are so many great nuggets in this resolution of the Randolph Plan. Recalls, term limits, so much more. I know, Judge, but we will need to focus on just one aspect. First off, just to be clear, the first branch of the national legislature referred to here is what became the House of Representatives, and what the resolution would have done if ratified as drafted would be to prohibit members of the House of Representatives from serving in any federal office, regardless of whether it was paid. The only exception was if they held an office within the House of Representatives, like the Speaker of the House. It also prohibited members from holding federal office for some yet-to-be-determined time after they left office, so it was much stricter than the Articles of Confederation. 
Plus, it also prohibited members of the House of Representatives from serving in any state office. This was also much broader than the Articles of Confederation and the final version of the Constitution. The federal Constitution has no waiting period for taking a new office, and it does not prohibit a member of Congress from holding a state office. The fifth resolution of the Virginia Plan was basically a duplicate for the second branch of the national legislature, what was eventually the Senate, and it had the same prohibitions. No federal offices could be held by senators, and senators could hold no state offices. The Virginia Plan was introduced on May 29th. The provisions at issue seem to have been basically ignored in the Constitutional Convention until the August 6th draft report. Article 6, Section 9 of the August 6th draft provided as follows. The members of each House shall be ineligible to and incapable of holding any office under the authority of the United States during the time for which they shall respectively be elected, and the members of the Senate shall be ineligible to and incapable of holding any such office for one year afterwards. So, this provision carries over the ineligibility of serving in federal office and prohibits senators from holding federal office for a year after they leave service. However, it drops the prohibition of holding state office and allows members of the House of Representatives to take federal office immediately. On August 14th, a debate erupted over the provision. South Carolina's Charles Pickney took the floor and assailed the provision as insulting to the members of the Congress and completely counterproductive to good governance. The making the members ineligible to offices was degrading to them, and the more improper as their election into the legislature implied that they had the confidence of the people, that it was inconvenient because the Senate might be supposed to contain the fittest men. I hope to see that body become a school of public ministers, a nursery of statesmen. That it was impolitic because the legislature would cease to be a magnet to the first talents and abilities. I move to postpone the section in order to take up the following proposition. The members of each house shall be incapable of holding any office under the United States for which they or any others for their benefit receive any salary, fees, or emoluments any kind and the acceptance of such office shall vacate their seats, respectively. Notice this alternative language is much more akin to the provision in the Articles of Confederation. The motion was seconded by Pennsylvania Delegate Thomas Mifflin. We haven't heard much from Delegate Mifflin, but he was a fascinating founding father. A Quaker, he had a mercantile business and served in the Pennsylvania Provincial Assembly and in the First Continental Congress in 1774. He eventually became George Washington's aide-de-camp and the Continental Army's first quartermaster general. He served in many early battles and was eventually promoted to major general in the Continental Army. Because of his military service, the Quakers kicked him out. Worse, he participated in a half-baked plot to oust his boss, George Washington, and replace him with another general. When this plot was exposed, he resigned and returned to the Pennsylvania State Assembly and was elected to Congress, even serving as president in 1783. He became governor and chaired Pennsylvania's state constitutional convention. In response to the Pickney Amendment and Mifflin's second, Virginia George Mason rose and with deep irony argued, <laughs> I propose to strike out the whole section as a more effectual expedient for encouraging that exotic corruption which might not otherwise thrive so well in the American soil for completing that aristocracy which was probably in the contemplation of some among us and for inviting into the legislative service those generous and benevolent characters who will do justice to each other's merit, carving out offices and rewards for it. In the present state of American morals and manners, few friends, it may be thought, 
we'll be lost to the plan by the opportunity of giving premiums to a mercenary and depraved ambition. If I may, bombastic Brent Bassett, Mason's sarcastic point was that strong protections needed to exist to stop the Congress from being corrupted by creating and doling out offices to themselves. Now, youthful John Francis Mercer, who was a Virginia native but represented the state of Florida, responded with a counterblast. In particular, he argued that the executive needed to be able to dole out offices to the legislature to allow the executive to have any semblance of power. And this was not sarcastic at all. It is a first principle in political science that whenever the rights of property are secured, an aristocracy will grow out of it. Elective governments also necessarily become aristocratic because the rulers, being few, can and will draw emoluments for themselves from the many. The governments of America will become aristocracies. They are so already. The public measures are calculated for the benefit of the governors, not of the people. The people are dissatisfied and complain. They change their rulers, and the public measures are changed. But it is only a change of one scheme of emoluments to the rulers for another. The people gain nothing by it, but an addition of instability and uncertainty to their other evils. Governments can only be maintained by force or influence. The executive has not force. Deprive him of influence by rendering the members of the legislature ineligible to executive offices and he becomes a mere phantom of authority. The aristocratic part will not even let him in for a share of the plunder. The legislature must and will be composed of wealth and abilities, and the people will be governed by a hunter. The executive ought to have a council being members of both houses. Without such an influence, the war will be between the aristocracy and the people. I wish it to be between the aristocracy and the executive. Nothing else can protect the people against those speculating legislatures which are now plundering them throughout the United States. Yes, this argument is deeply cynical. Mercer argues that even the American Republic will be an aristocracy and we should just accept it. If the president can't dangle the allure of federal offices to congressmen, then Congress will run over the president and he will become a mere phantom. Although this may strike some of us as odd today, this was a passionately held position. The opposite viewpoint was just as passionately held. Elbridge Gary rose in favor of the bar against holding federal offices and viciously attacked Mercer's argument. First, he noted that Massachusetts had specifically instructed him to ensure that the Constitution barred members of Congress from holding federal office and... I could not think with Mr. Pinckney that the disqualifications was degrading. Confidence is the road to tyranny. As to ministers and ambassadors, few of them were necessary. It is the opinion of a great many that they ought to be discontinued on our part, that none may be sent among us, and that source of influence shut up. If the Senate were to appoint ambassadors, as seemed to be intended, they will multiply embassies for their own sake. I am not so fond of those productions as to wish to establish nurseries for them. If they are once appointed, the House of Representatives will be obliged to provide salaries for them, whether they approve of the measures or not. If men will not serve in the legislature without a prospect of such offices, our situation is deplorable indeed. If our best citizens are actuated by such mercenary views, we had better choose a single despot at once. It will be more easy to satisfy the rapacity of one than of many. According to the idea of one gentleman, Mr. Mercer, our government, it seems, is to be a government of plunder. In that case, it certainly would be prudent to have but one rather than many to be employed in it. 
We cannot be too circumspect in the formation of this system. It will be examined on all sides and with a very suspicious eye. Let me jump in here just for a second, Bombastic Brimbasset. Jerry responded to Mercer's cynicism with some sense of optimism. First, he said if Mercer is right, better to put all the power on one person to be done with it than pretending that diffusing power would make a difference. At least this way, the people could focus their attention on one leader as opposed to a gaggle of members of Congress. But second, he really thought the prohibition against plural office holding was an important hedge against corruption. Jerry then proposed that members of the House of Representatives should be disqualified from holding federal office for a year after they left the House, just like the Senate was barred in the August 6th draft. Governor Morris, on the other hand, thought that the people should be trusted and there was little danger of corruption. He thought a member of Congress should vacate their office if they took an appointment, but should be eligible for re-election. North Carolina Delegate Hugh Williamson reacted strongly in favor of barring holding office while also serving in Congress. He began his comments by noting that in a prior debate, the convention had agreed to allow bills appropriating money to originate in the Senate, which he thought was a dreadful mistake. In England, money bills could only originate in the House of Commons, and he thought that only the House of Representatives should be able to originate money bills here. He then remarked that allowing office holding while serving in Congress would compound this error. It would only serve to feed the corruption in the federal legislature. To avoid another inconvenience, we ought to have a whole legislature at liberty to cut out offices for one another. I think a self-denying ordinance for ourselves would be more than proper. Bad as the Constitution has been made by expunging the restriction on the Senate concerning money bills, I do not wish to make it worse by expunging the present section. I had scarcely seen a single corrupt measure in the legislature of North Carolina which could not be traced up to office hunting. Connecticut's Roger Sherman agreed he thought that we should avoid as many temptations to corruption as possible. Charles Pinckney disagreed. He pointed out that no states barred such plural office holding. In fact, in South Carolina, judges could serve in the legislature. It could not offend the people of the states to allow plural office holding. James Wilson weighed in. He first explained that he had an independent duty to decide whether the provision was appropriate or not, regardless of the feelings of his constituents. Then, he noted that barring plural office holding was unnecessary, unprecedented, and would undermine the authority of the Congress. I could not approve of the section as it stood, and could not give up my judgment to any supposed objections that might arise among the people. I consider myself as acting and responsible for the welfare of millions not immediately represented in this house. I had also asked myself the serious question, what I should say to my constituents in case they should call upon me to tell them why I sacrificed my own judgment in a case where they authorized me to exercise it. Were I to own to them that I sacrificed it in order to flatter their prejudices, I should dread the retort. Did you suppose the people of Pennsylvania had not good sense enough to receive a good government? Under this impression, I should certainly follow my own judgment, which disapproved of this section. I would remark, in addition to the objections urged against it, that as one branch of the legislature was to be appointed by the legislatures of the states, the other by the people of the states, as both are to be paid by the states and to be appointable to state offices. Nothing seemed to be wanting to prostrate the national legislature, but to render its members ineligible to national offices, and by that means take away its power of attracting those talents which were necessary to give weight to the government and to render it useful to the people. I am far from thinking that the ambition which aspired to offices of dignity and trust and ignoble or culpable one. I am sure it was not politic to regard it in that light or to withhold from it the prospect of those rewards which might engage it in the career of public service. I observed that the state of Pennsylvania, which had gone as far as any state into the policy of fettering power, had not rendered the members of the legislature ineligible to offices of government. 
Using his own judgment, Wilson thought that federal government needed congressmen to serve in federal office to attract the talented people it needed. Without it, the best lights would stay in the states, undermining the federal government. This was unpersuasive to many. Connecticut Delegate Oliver thought that Wilson was full of hot air. Talented men would still seek federal office, if only to make themselves eligible for federal positions after they retired from the Congress. I do not think the mere postponement of the reward would be any material discouragement of merit. Ambitious minds will serve two years or seven years in the legislature for the sake of qualifying themselves for other offices. This, I think, is sufficient security for obtaining the services of the ablest men in the legislature, although, whilst members, they should be ineligible to public offices. Besides, merit will be most encouraged when most impartially rewarded. If rewards are to circulate only within the legislature, merit out of it will be discouraged. Maryland's John Francis Mercer rose again to join the fray. He thought the whole point of the Constitutional Convention was to establish a strong federal government, and that would be undermined by barring plural officeholding. In reality, the federal government would only work if talented and influential men joined it, and that would only happen if those men could be rewarded to take lucrative federal offices. Otherwise, they would just stay home and take state positions. I am extremely anxious on this point. What led to the appointment of this convention? The corruption and mutability of the legislative councils of the states. If the plan does not remedy these, it will not recommend itself, and we shall not be able in our private capacities to support and enforce it, nor will the best part of our citizens exert themselves for the purpose. It is a great mistake to suppose the paper we are to propose will govern the United States. It is men whom it will bring into the government, and interest in maintaining it, that are to govern them. The paper will only mark out the mode and the form. Men are the substance and must do the business. All government must be by force or influence. It is not the king of France, but 200,000 janissaries, that is, armed men akin to the sultan's personal elite troops, of power that govern the kingdom. There will be no such force here. Influence, then, must be substituted, and he would ask whether this could be done if the members of the legislature should be ineligible to offices of state, whether such a disqualification would not determine all the most influential men to stay at home and prefer appointments within their respective states. In other words, men are men, and to get the best men to join the federal government, the federal constitution needed to tempt them to take federal offices. Wilson retook the floor and said that he thought Ellsworth's argument was weak. Gouverneur Morris threw in another wrench. He asked what would happen in wartime if the most talented general was in the Congress. Charles Pinckney's motion, if you can remember it, was defeated. In other words, the provision barring plural office holding remained in the draft constitution. Virginia's Gouverneur Morris moved to add an exception to the incompatibility of offices provision for military and naval officers, and it was seconded by Delaware Delegate Jacob Broom. Virginia Delegate Edmund Randolph railed against the idea of eliminating the prohibition in general, but agreed that the exception for military service was wise. Other delegates urged that the debate be tabled until the full powers of the Senate were finalized. The debate moved to other topics. Eventually, the idea was dropped. Earlier, Virginia's George Mason declared that this provision was the cornerstone on which our liberties depend. If we strike it out, we are erecting a fabric for our destruction. This sentiment carried the day. In the end, the Constitutional Convention kept the prohibition against plural office holding. In the Constitution's ratifying convention in Pennsylvania, elaborating on George Mason's pithy comment at the Federal Convention, James Wilson took the floor to point out the beneficial effect and extreme importance of the clause. 
Another good quality of this constitution is that the members of the legislature cannot hold offices under the authority of this government. The operation of this, I apprehend, would be found to be very extensive and very salutary in this country to prevent those intrigues, those factions, that corruption that would otherwise rise here and have risen so plentifully in every other country. The reason why it is necessary in England to continue such influence is that the Crown, in order to secure its own influence against two other branches of the legislature, must continue to bestow places, but those places produce the opposition which frequently runs so strong in the British Parliament. Members who do not enjoy offices combine against those who do enjoy them. It is not the principle that they thwart the ministry in all its operations. No, their language is, let us turn them out and succeed to their places. The great source of corruption in that country is that person say hold offices under the crown and seats in the legislature at the same time. One anti-federalist, Melanchthon Smith, countered that the prohibition was not enough. That clever men would figure out ways to circumvent the restriction was obvious because the federal government itself would be corrupting. More than one of the gentlemen have ridiculed my apprehensions of corruption. How say they are the people to be corrupted by their own money? Sir, in many countries, the people pay money to corrupt themselves. Why should it not happen in this? Certainly, the Congress will be as liable to corruption as other bodies of men. Have they not the same frailties and the same temptations? With respect to the corruption arising from the disposal of offices, the sentiments have treated the argument as insignificant. But let anyone take a calculation and see whether there will be good offices enough to dispose of to every man who gets there, who will then freely resign his seat. For can anyone suppose that a member of Congress would not go out and relinquish his four dollars a day for two or three thousand pounds a year? Is it here objected that no man can hold an office related during the time he is in Congress? But it will be easy for a man of influence who has in his eye on a favored office previously created and already filled to say to his friend who holds it, Here, I will procure you another place of more emolument, provided you will relinquish yours in favor of me. The Constitution appears to be a restraint, when in fact it is none at all. I presume, sir, there will not be a government in the world in which there is a greater scope for influence and corruption in the disposal of offices. Sir, I will not declaim and say all men are dishonest, but I will think that in forming a constitution, if we presume this, we shall be on the safest side. This extreme is certainly less dangerous than the other. It is to multiply checks to a greater degree than the present state of things requires. It is said that the corruption has never taken place under the old government. I believe gentlemen hazard this assertion without proofs. That it was taken some place in some degree is very probable. Many millions of money have been put into the hands of government, which have never yet been accounted for. The accounts are not yet settled, and heaven only knows when they will be. Other than Wilson and Smith, the state ratifying conventions ignored the provision, as did the Federalists and Anti-Federalist papers. This is not to say it was unimportant. To the contrary, despite Smith's misgivings and the raging debate in the Constitutional Convention, the provision generated little controversy because it was apparently widely perceived to be wise. After all, Anti-Federalists wanted as many hedges against corruption as possible they would definitely be in favor of it. Northwestern Law School professor Stephen G. Calabrese and Joan L. Larson, Larson is now a judge on the Federal Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, wrote a Cornell Law Review article entitled One Person, One Office, Separation of Powers or Separation of Personnel that explained why this is so. And all footnotes are omitted here. The framers' hatred of plural office holding grew from bitter experience. 
English Whigs, who had greatly influenced the framers, had for years complained about the corrupting effect of plural office-holding and royal patronage on the conduct of politics in the 17th and 18th century England. It was these complaints, rather than abstract theories about the separation of powers, that led the framers to ban plural office-holding. The issue arose in 17th and 18th century English politics because the Glorious Revolution of 1688 had shifted power from the king to parliament and had thus impaired the royal prerogative. But the English kings held on to power by exploiting their status as the sole fountain of honors, offices, and privileges. 18th century English monarchs retained the power to create offices and titles of nobility and to confer them on individuals without parliamentary approval. It should come as no surprise that they used this power to great political effect. The king's patronage power gave him two key tools through which he could control parliament. First, by promoting the influential members of parliament MPs to ministerial office, the king could win their backing in parliament for his programs. Second, by dangling the prospect of a lucrative office, pension, or title of nobility, the king could induce even non-office-holding MPs to support him in hopes of benefiting from the royal largesse. It would be hard to overstate the effect that the king's unscrupulous use of patronage and the system of royal influence had on the conduct of politics in 17th and 18th century England. At a time when political offices and emoluments were the major source of social distinction and financial security, the allure of office was strong. A whole generation of young men went to Parliament with the express purpose of making their fortunes by obtaining an office. One historian describes the Parliament of the day as being filled with parties, cliques, and factions of men prowling and hunting for office in packs. The unsurprising effect of this political gamesmanship was that the representatives in Parliament routinely disregarded the wishes of the voters who elected them, instead casting their votes in favor of the king's often abusive proposals. As a result, parliamentary corruption was the obsessive concern of both the left and the right in 18th century England, and the opposition literature from both ends of the political spectrum hurled invective at the corrupting system. To make a centuries-long story short, the Parliament pushed against this corrupt practice, but its efforts were blunted by a power-hungry crown. Eventually, Parliament required members of the House of Commons who were appointed to another office to resign and stand for re-election, but even this compromise was inapplicable in the colonies. Thus, royal governors were able to corrupt and make dependent on their will otherwise able colonial men. This provoked outrage across the colonies. Justice Story similarly observed that, The object of these provisions is sufficiently manifest. It is to secure the legislature against undue influence and indirect corruption on the part of the executive. Whether much reliance can be placed upon guards of this disqualifying nature has been greatly doubted. It is not easy, by any constitutional or legislative enactments, to shut out all, or even many, of the avenues of undue or corrupt influence upon the human mind. The great securities for society, those on which it must forever rest in a government, are responsibility to the people through elections and personal character, and purity of principle. Where these are wanting, there can never be any solid confidence or any deep sense of security. Where these exist, they become a sufficient guarantee against all sinister influences as well as all gross offenses. It has been remarked, with equal profoundness and sagacity that there is a degree of depravity in mankind which requires a certain degree of circumspection and distrust. So there are other qualities in human nature which justify a certain portion of esteem and confidence. Republican government presupposes the existence of these qualities in a higher form than any other. It might well be deemed harsh to disqualify an individual from any office clearly required by the exigencies of the country simply because he had done his duty. And, 
On the other hand, the disqualification might operate upon many persons who might find their way into the national councils as a strong inducement to postpone the creation of necessary offices, lest they should become victims of their high discharge of duty. The other part of the clause, which disqualified persons holding any office under the United States from being members of either house during the continuance in office, has been still more universally applauded, and has been vindicated upon the highest grounds of public policy. It is doubtless founded in a deference to state jealousy, and a sincere desire to obviate the fears, real or imaginary, that the general government would obtain an undue preference over state governments. It has also the strong recommendation that it prevents any undue influence from office, either upon the party himself or those with whom he is associated in legislative deliberations. Still, Story notes that even with these advantages, there are downsides. In particular, he thought that the executive worked in secret to accomplish what it might otherwise do in public. The universal exclusion of all persons holding office is, it must be admitted, attended with some inconveniences. The heads of department are, in fact, thus precluded from proposing or vindicating their own measures in the face of the nation in the course of debate, and are compelled to submit them to other men who are either imperfectly acquainted with the measures or are indifferent to their success or failure. Thus, that open and public responsibility for measures which properly belongs to the executive in all governments, and especially in a republican government, as its greatest security and strength, is completely done away. The executive is compelled to resort to secret and unseen influence, to private interviews and private arrangements to accomplish his own appropriate purposes, instead of proposing and sustaining his duties and measures by a bold and manly appeal to the nation in the face of its representatives. One consequence of this state of things is that there never can be traced home to the executive any responsibility for the measures which are planned and carried at his suggestion. Patronage may be quite as effective under a different form. It may confer office on a friend or a relative or a dependent. The hope of office in future may seduce a man from his duty as much as its present possession. And, after all, the chief guards against venality in all governments must be placed in the high virtue, the unspotted honor, and the pure patriotism of public men. On this account, it has been doubted whether the exclusion of the heads of departments from Congress has not led to the use of indirect and irresponsible influence on the part of the executive over the measures of Congress far more than could exist if the heads of departments held seats in Congress and might be compelled to avow and defend their own opinions. The provision, however, as it stands, has hitherto been found acceptable to the American people and ought not lightly to be surrendered. Justice Story's concern has been borne out on more than one occasion in American history, but that's a different podcast altogether. Indeed it is. Thanks, Bombastic Brent Bassett. Some key takeaways from this episode. Except for criminal cases, members of Congress cannot be arrested while going to, attending, or leaving Congress. This provides them the freedom they need to conduct their work and represent the people. Other than in Congress, members of Congress are absolutely immune for any speech they give while on the floor of the House or the Senate. This is necessary to ensure the robust debate essential to finding the best public policy and that all the people's representatives have voice. Members of Congress cannot also hold another federal office and vice versa. This prohibition on plural office holding acts as a strong hedge against corruption. 
and domination by the presidency. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and author of America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles in History. Our other two fabulous Patriot narrators are Mike Gerard Skodetchny, who is our sound designer and Patriot Week's video content producer, and the fabulous bartender and dad, Bombastic Brent Bassett. This podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org to learn more about America's first principles, key documents and speeches, founding fathers, and other great patriots in flags from our history, along with all the fantastic resources we have to offer. Our fellow patriots, thank you for listening. Until next time, when we continue our exploration of the United States Congress, God bless you and God bless America. Thank you, our fellow patriots, for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and many other platforms. You can also find much more at PatriotWeek.org, which includes videos, lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then 10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram, or reach out directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America. Thank you.